With Capella University's FlexPath learning format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network. Today on the James Altucher Show. When you left Google, the biggest and best company in the world, for Dropbox, people probably thought you were crazy. Like, Dropbox was this little tiny company at the time. What were you thinking? Well, when I joined Google, everybody thought I was crazy. It was a little tiny company as well, even though it was small at the time. Play the movie forward. Where is it going to be in 10 years? It's logical to me that the company that pioneered this notion of putting your files in the cloud is going to have all kinds of opportunities and going to solve problems for everybody in the world. And a lot of people don't think that way. They think very linearly. That's how we're taught as kids. That's how you're taught in college. You have to rewire your brain a bit to say, well, what trends do I understand to be true? If I extrapolate that trend to its logical conclusion, what does the world look like? It's hard to recognize. It is very hard. Hey, so Dennis Woodside, COO of Dropbox, one of the fastest growing companies ever, basically. Uh, Welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Now, Dennis, you know, we went to um, college at the same place at the same time. That's right. But we didn't know each other. No, we didn't. There (laughs) were a lot of people there. Yeah. It's like 20,000 students there. Yeah. So, and you lived all the way on the other side of campus anyway. We And did you do any sports? I never did any sports or anything. I did. I rode. You rode? Yeah. What does that mean? Like you played polo? (laughs) No, I, I was in the rowing team, crew. Oh, row. Rowing, a boat. Okay. Okay, so <laughs> you were sort of like the, the equivalent of the, the Winklevoss brothers, but at Cornell. That, there you go, just so, like that. And then, and then <laughs> you were at Google for many years. Yeah. Now you're at Dropbox. Yeah. I want to, like, how did you end up at Google? I know you, were, you, that you went to law school, and, and then I want to get into Dropbox and yeah. all of the ways you've kind of reinvented yourself and how you decided to go from a super successful company to, when you were at Dropbox, it was still kind of a startup. We'll get into all that, but I just want to know the basic thing. Like, how did you end up at, like, that end of the world? So I, so I grew up in Philadelphia and then went with you to Cornell. Uh, but the big thing that I did at Cornell was rowing. I was actually a national uh, class rower. Uh, two friends of mine wound up going to the Olympics. I was about to ask if you had gone to the Olympics. No, no, two buddies of mine did. But I realized I, I, you can't make a living rowing. Really? You can, there are no billionaire rowers? There's no billionaire. <laughs> there might. The Winklevosses might be. Oh, yeah, there you right. go. The Bitcoin <laughs> thing worked out for them so yeah. far. So, uh, And so I went, out to, I went out to Stanford for law school, which got me. That's how I got on the West Coast in the first place. So when you go, when you go to Stanford Law School, because that's where Peter Thiel went, did you know those guys? I didn't know him. He was a couple years before me. Okay. And... You know, this, you remember these days, this, the, there was no internet. This right. was pre Yahoo. This was pre email, really. And uh, wound up practicing law for a little bit, worked here in New York for a federal judge on the Second Circuit. So I actually was a lawyer for a period of time. And that was a fascinating job because you're helping the judge decide really critical cases. One of the cases we heard was uh, related to the first attempt to bomb the World Trade Center. Remember, oh, wow. Abdul Rahman drove a bus into the into the garage of the trade center, blew it up, and yeah, yeah, and was it like 1991? It was, ni- yeah, it was around then, and uh, and so you're you're deciding these very weighty issues, and uh, so it's it's kind of the pinnacle of of legal practice in many ways, and then you become a lawyer, which is which is a completely different job. So wait, when you were going over that case, 
What was the issue, whether he was guilty or not? He was appealing a fairly technical aspect of his of his uh, conviction. So he had been convicted in the lower court, and he was appealing that to okay. to the appellate court. So like something went wrong Supreme in the conviction. Court. Exactly. He his conviction was affirmed, and he he died in jail. Hmm. Uh, but we also heard a case arising out of a conspiracy to bomb all the bridges and tunnels in New York. We heard insider trading cases, I and mean, it's it's a fascinating, fascinating job. What's what was the most in- interesting insider trading case? Because I'm always intrigued by that. I don't know if you remember Joseph Jett. So yeah, to, yeah, from Morgan Stanley. Uh, I think he was Payne Weber, I believe. But he 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 came up with a scheme that was sort of the pre-Madoff uh, Ponzi scheme, where he just kept buying debt and buying and buying and buying debt, and and, and he he hid the uh, the bonds trades that he did from everybody else at the bank, and it turned out that they were a huge bust. And so we heard an appeal arising out of his conviction. So it was pretty fascinating uh, work. So did he I, Did he get off or he got out of jail and he made some money somehow? I think eventually he got out. I, I don't and remember. And I think they paid him like money to like leave. To, to get out of jail? Or no, to get out of um, Payne Weber or whatever. Oh, yeah, they may have. I think he they made some have. kind of settlement. Some kind of know. deal. I, I don't Cause remember. Because you know, in something like that, it's never by yourself. Like no. a, you know, his boss was probably involved. His employees were involved. Yeah, and I think they, and I think the company was fined as well. Yeah. And I'm probably wrong about Payne Weber. I don't remember the exact thing. So well, I think maybe Morgan Stanley might have bought, bought Payne Weber or something. Or like Dean this. Witter. Or yeah. One of these things happened. Yeah. yeah. So so okay. So you're at the judge, and then obviously when you when you work on all these high profile cases, the natural next thing, and particularly before everybody knew the internet was going to be anything, the natural next thing would be to work at like a top tier law firm and yeah. then make partner and make two million a year and then 20 years later retire. That is the, that is the path. Mm-hmm. Uh, one thing that was interesting in going to school at Stanford, I, I met a, a number of people, some of whom wound up going into tech. Uh, and I, I knew one of the early folks who, who went into Yahoo. Um, but I remember sitting in, in the judges chambers in lower Manhattan and reading a Wall Street Journal article, uh, this is 96, um, uh, about, about the internet and about uh, new businesses that are being formed. At some point, I don't know if it was then or a little bit later, read about Amazon and this Jeff Bezos guy starting to create the book marketplace for the world. And, and I actually thought, you know what? He's right. The way we buy books today is just wrong. And this is going to be something. And so that sort of stuck in the back of my mind that at some point in time, I, I want to be involved in what's next, not necessarily follow the same path that everybody before me tends to follow. Well, you know, it's funny. There's there's like, let's say two paths that one can take. One is very filtered and the filter is, okay, you go to school, then you try to go to a good college or at least get a certificate. Then you go to a graduate school, then you get a standard like let's say you're on the lawyer path, okay, you do some public service, then you work for a top tier law firm, and, and it's this whole filtered path which leads to uh, kind of a definition of success. Then there's this unfiltered path where at some point you have to make a leap and say, okay, here's something I might love, I might have some skills for, but I'll have to develop new skills, and you try it. Often the unfiltered path could lead to much greater success, which obviously occurred in, in your place, but like what what was the actual jump? What was your first jump? Well, I think so. The the, the first jump that I didn't take was go was deciding to practice law for a little bit after working for the judge, and I thought about it, uh, but I wasn't I wasn't ready. I, I don't think I was mentally ready to make that break. Mm. Um, and it turned out to be a decent decision, but ultimately I wasn't a particularly great lawyer. And I realized that I wasn't going to be a great lawyer. Why did you think that? How did you know that? Well, I, I so I knew that because. 
being a lawyer is a bit like coding. You have to be, you have to concentrate all day in front of a screen, especially as a junior attorney. Uh, you're working on, let's say, a very complex contract. So, you, so it's you have to think about all the moving pieces of the contract. And I found that dr- personally draining. You have to understand all that detail. And then when you're putting together a deal, there's there's all of that comes together in in a closing day where you bring together all of the documents that you need to close the deal, and and you close the deal. Now we were when I realized I was not going to be a great lawyer. I was working on a very big deal. This is like a multi-month uh, project. Many lawyers involved. And you left all the documents on the subway. Hold on, hold on. <laughs> it, it was a stock sale, right? Okay. So what do you need in a stock sale? You need someone to pay you money, and then you need the actual stock. Right. So we had all these documents, probably literally a room this big filled with documents. And the one thing that we did not have, because I did not think to go get it, was the stock certificate, which happened to be in a safe on the other side of the country. So all these people assembled, closing dinner that night. We couldn't close the deal. Uh, so that was embarrassing. That's so, <laughs> just being on, let's say, the other side. You, you could imagine, too, being on the other side of that transaction where you're waiting for your, your cash. You know, and there's a saying, oh. a deal's not closed until the cash is in the exactly, bank. Exactly. So that guy is freaking out at this moment and yelling at you. Yes, and so what we wound up doing was, there's, there's an arcane provision of the law where you can cancel that old stock certificate if you convene the board of directors and create a new stock certificate. And that's what we wound up doing, which took another several hours. Had to get the board of the company on the phone. Very embarrassing for, for me. Oh my God. And so that, that sort of led me to believe this might not be the right path, but there were other things involved. And, uh, and I realized I kind of needed to re-educate myself and learn more about the business side of what I was doing, which I found pretty fascinating. So that's when I went to McKinsey, a consulting firm. It's kind of known as a place where you can learn a whole new set of skills around business, and they happen to be hiring people who weren't MBAs, and and that took me in a completely different direction. And then, how did you get into, you know, actually being now, you know, executive in a tech company? You know, first you were, I mean, you were at Google for quite some time, and then you were the CEO of their uh, Motorola division uh, when they bought yep. uh, the Motorola, and then now, of course, you're at. Dropbox helping. I mean, actually, I want to skip ahead. Okay, and then we'll we'll reel back. Sure. You when you left Google, the the biggest and best company in the world for Dropbox, people probably thought you were crazy. Like Dropbox was this little tiny company at the time. What what were you thinking? Well, when I joined Google, everybody thought I was crazy. It was a little tiny company as well. There were about what, what year did you join Google? Two thousand three. Okay. Yeah. So so I kind of seen that and. The greatest thing, you know, one of the one of the most exciting things you can do, I think, in, with a career certainly in Silicon Valley, is is help grow a company and be there early when none of the uh, teams are in place and and there's a lot of uncertainty and competition's really hard and you've got to figure everything out. That's the hardest part, but the most rewarding part. But for every thousand people who say that, nine hundred ninety nine of them will end up at small companies that never go anywhere. That's possibly true. Some of them wind up as small companies that don't go anywhere, and then they find their way to successful companies. Okay. Don't forget, like Drew Houston, who started Dropbox, he he had started a failed test prep software company. So the, Dropbox is his second company. That's very common. So I thought with Dropbox, you already had you know two incredible founders, super technical, really exciting problem that they're solving. Our, our belief is when you've got five or six different devices all connected, you're not going to want anything on the device. You're going to want everything in the cloud, and Dropbox helps you solve that problem. So global market already had a lot of revenue and usage, and I, I felt I could help Drew and Arash grow the company, and uh, and it's been an incredible ride. And you're kind of, 
even though you say they're experienced founders, I sort of feel like you're kind of their Sheryl Sandberg in the sense that you already had, you know, huge experience at the biggest company out there, Google, and then you had been running the the Motorola division. So you kind of really were able to, I'm sure they were happy to have you on board to kind of really take the ship to the next level. Well, I think it's, I think it's complimentary. I mean, I'm never going to be a founder. I think there's, there's, there, there are people like Jordan Ross who are incredibly brilliant around product and technology. How do you how do you take advantage of all the different technology trends that are going on, the way people are are working, how that's changing, and build a product that satisfies a need that literally hundreds of millions of people use? That's an art, and that's an incredibly hard to do. And and one of the things I think Drew has done well is he's always seeking out advice. So the way I met him was he scheduled a lunch uh, through a friend of mine. And he just peppered me with questions for an hour about, you know, how did you grow your team? What kind of people do you hire? How do you organize your team? When did you go international when you were at Google? When did you guys make that decision? Those sorts of things. And, um, and so he's always learning. And I think he, he thought that he could bring someone who can help him learn as well as help him scale uh, scale the business. And, and, and it's been a lot of fun working with him and, and Araj. I mean, I believe, I think it was Steve Jobs who said, you know, he was going after Dropbox at one point and, and, or, or, you know, and he was interested in the storage space. And he said, listen, you're, you're a feature, not a company. Like, how did you respond to that kind of feeling about, about the company? Yeah. You know, pe- people said that about Google. You're, it's just, it's just a search box. That was the meme when I joined the company, what what else can it ever be? Well, you know, can, can I tell you a quick story? So uh, this was in two thousand one. Uh, I was running a venture capital fund, and a company called Oingo was practically out of business, and they were begging us for money. We could have probably owned half that company, and uh, for for almost nothing. And their whole business was how do you help search engines monetize a little by forming auctions around buying keywords. So eventually Google bought them. They, they changed their name to Applied Semantics. Google bought them for 1% of the equity of Google and it became AdWords and AdSense. And you know, that's 99.9% of Google's revenues or give or take. And I had said no when they had originally pitched, even though it was this, it would have been a, a, a great deal for us. I said no, because I said, ah, the search engine business is dead. <laughs> So I was too stupid to recognize. It's hard to recognize. It is very hard, and a lot of people, a lot of people said that about Google. When I joined Dropbox, the meme was there are it's totally commoditized space. You're going to have to compete against huge players like Apple and Microsoft and Google, plus a ton of small specialist players. There's no way you're going to be able to be successful, or that company's going to going to turn a product's going to turn into a company over a long period of time. And now we're a billion dollar run rate company, you know, generating a lot of cash. So. If you address a big market, a big universal problem, you can grow a business very big, very fast. And if you if you acquire the right engineering talent in particular, product and engineering and design talent, you can put that talent to work on both perfecting the product that you have and then inventing the next thing. And that's that's a proven path that you've seen Facebook follow and Google, and that's what we're doing. You know, it seems like, when you put it that way, it seems like you kind of have to be in Silicon Valley, actually, because how do you hire all that kind of talent you know, it's just like why Mark Zuckerberg moved to Silicon Valley. Like, how do you? It seem it seems like outside of Silicon Valley, where in the U.S. as mobile as we think society has become, where in the U.S. can you really find uh, that kind of talent uh, on the engineering side? I think it's really hard. I mean, Drew moved Drew moved to San Francisco as well uh, once Dropbox got going. Drew and Arash to to build build the team there. 
certainly if you need people who understand scale computing, machine learning, AI, most of those folks are, are in California. If you're, if you're focused more on folks who are maybe a little bit more around media, uh, and the intersection of media and technology in New York is a great place. I mean, there are pockets all over the country, but there tends to be a huge concentration in the Valley. The challenge for us is it's super competitive for people. So we have people coming to us who say, hey, I've got eight job offers. I mean, it's, it's insane. I don't know how you actually go out and get eight job offers. Right, but here, here's the thing. Like a good, an A-plus programmer, it's, like, it's not like there's um, a, a bell curve of talent in programming. It's more like a power law. So it's like, here's one level of programmers, then here's the next level, and then here's the next level. And each one's 10 times better than the level before. So if you get one re- like A-level programmer, he really is worth 10 times, or she is really worth 10 times. The second level was worth 10 times the third level. So if you get all those A-level players, it's almost like they're priceless. Yeah, the value the value that you have, especially once you've got a, a massive platform already, uh, is huge. So if you can, for us, for example, if we can save 1% of all our storage costs through some engineering innovation, that's worth millions of dollars to us. And often it's an individual engineer or a team of two or three who come up with that innovation. It's seldom that it's like, 50 people who solve that kind of a hard technical Right, it's problem. like one or two guys who decide to work all weekend and get it done before everybody shows up on Monday. Like they just work nonstop and they solve all the problems and it's done. We, we, had a, we do a, a week every year called Hack Week where our engineers and product uh, folks and designers just solve problems that they see with our current products or invent new products. And two years ago, one of our engineers attacked this issue of, of storage. How do I... How do I compress images in particular uh, in, in a more efficient way? And he literally generated millions of dollars from an improvement to our, our compression algorithm wow. in, in a week. That sort of uh, feels like the Silicon Valley TV show. It is exactly like <laughs> this. And he, was, he actually had the Pied Piper t-shirt on the whole time that he was coding. So. That's funny. Yeah, yeah. Um, so let's, uh, I have more questions about Dropbox, but let's reel back to, to Google. You're at Google and you're working for you know, Larry Page and and Sergey Brin, and uh, uh, these are like icons now in technology. I mean, they're still young, they're still growing, they still have decades left to go with with Google. Uh, their stories are fascinating to me. Like, what, what, what are some of the things you've learned from them? Well, the first time I met Sergey, he interviewed me, and I, we went into his office, which was kind of a, a, a windowless room like this, and he's, he was lying on his back, I think on the floor because he had hurt his back. So he interviewed me entirely lying on the floor, which I thought was quite unique. Um, but I've, I learned a lot from, 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 from them and from Eric Schmidt and everybody at Google, really. I think one of the things that, that, that Larry taught all of us is that you have to think very long-term when you're at the beginning of, a, of some of these massive technology changes. So one of the assignments I had was, hey, come back. And I, w- I was a strategy person, strategy and ops at, at at Google, there's a whole team there now, but I basically started th- that team. And uh, one of the the projects that we were asked to pursue is, hey, tell us what countries we need to be in. So what countries in the world should Google have a presence? And we kind of went off and did the typical business school-like project, had a PowerPoint, came back and said, hey, there's 30 countries in the world and uh, it's gonna take us three years to get into them. And uh, I remember Larry saying, do you understand how many do you understand we get searches in 196 countries or from 196 countries today? Why don't you start with that number? T- cross off the countries that it's illegal to work in 
for, uh, for U.S. companies to have a presence in, and then, then come up back with a plan to get into all of those places. That's how he thought, and this was you know, 2004. And, and his point was, what we're doing is, is everybody in the world is going to need what we have built, figure out a way to get into those countries and to learn from what's going on there so we can build a better product. So uh, here's what I don't understand. If they already were getting searches from those countries, aren't they already in the countries? Or what does it mean to be in a country so for what, Google? Well, what, 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 what he wanted to understand was, you know, Nigeria is, a unique, is very unique from Egypt. How are people using our product differently in Nigeria? What do we need to build for those countries? And he, he did something very unconventional. He said, look, I actually want people in the country, which is really actually hard. You have mm-hmm. to deal with a bunch of legal issues. How do you pay them? How do you hire them? What do they do? But that's what we did. We hired people in Thailand and uh, uh, Kenya and Egypt and Dubai and all over Russia, Poland, Czech Republic. And each and their job, well, we called them scouts. Their job was to come back. They weren't there to make money. They were there to come back to Google and explain to us what was unique about the experience in their country, both the kinds of things people were doing on the web, the technology limitations. So Nigeria was mobile first from the very beginning. There really was no wired web. And, and to my knowledge, it's, there still isn't much of one. And so, so we actually got lots of learning. Like in Russia, for example, the, the morphology of the language is radically different than English. And our search engine, since it was originally based in English, didn't do a good job with Russian. So we had to change our whole morphology to compete better in Russia. So you learn all these things only if you have someone in the country who's smart, technical, uh, and, can, and, and can, can come back and also has that sort of innovative spirit and wants to be part of something big and understands how revolutionary the internet can be for their country. You know, imagine people in Poland, the, the fellow we hired, he told stories of being uh, in his basement as a kid li- listening to Radio Free Europe. Uh, and now he's working at, at a company whose entire mission is to enable anybody to get access to any information. So for them, there's a real, there's a real affiliation with the mission as well. And that stood that in the long run, that's been hugely beneficial for the company. Some of the best people at Google came from those places, uh, and Google makes money in all of those places as well today. So, 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 what do you take from that in terms of decision making? Like, it seems like Value Page has this kind of almost reverse way of thinking about. Like you, 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 like you said, you did this MBA sort of bottom up approach, and he kind of said, "No, start here and go backwards." What, 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 what do you take? What's your takeaway from it? Well, I, I, I do try to apply that to my. Decision. So you ask, well, why would you go from from Google to Dropbox? Because you know, when I was joining Dropbox, even though it was small at the time, just play play the movie forward. Where is it going to be in ten years? What's it's it's logical to me that the company that pioneered this notion of of putting your files in the cloud is going to have all kinds of opportunities and going to solve problems for everybody in the world. So so I think that's really important. And a lot of people don't think that way. They think very linearly. That's how we're taught. Uh, as kids, that's how you're taught in college. As a lawyer, it's a it's a linear uh, type of legal ed- uh, type of education. So you have to rewire your brain a bit to say, well, what trends do I understand to be true? If I extrapolate that trend to its logical conclusion, what does the world look like? What does that mean for opportunities that I might want to pursue? Because I going back to your first question, you could take the kind of defined path or the undefined path. I think the undefined path is interesting because you get to you don't need to be the expert. There's nobody's the expert. Uh, so you just bring kind of a first principles approach to to the problem that you're trying to solve and 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 design solutions for for the business that you're in or the situation that you're in rather than copying and pasting or someone else's or just following what someone else built you know 50 years ago. So so yeah, it seems like 
to make any kind of predictions, and like you say, you no one can really predict the future. No one really knows what trends are going to be around in 10 years. But let's take an extreme on one side and an extreme on the other side. So the extreme on one side is I know next year, I know for a fact there will be a winter, spring, summer, fall, you know, give or take. And uh, uh, that's like the extreme where I can predict. The other extreme is XYZ company that makes a, a thermostat to, you know, for the internet of things. I don't know if that will work or not. Like I have no idea, even though that's a big industry. I, I just, I know the internet of things will grow, but I don't know if any one company will, will grow. So like, why did I mess up so badly on my Google decision, you know, on my Oingo decision? Because uh, obviously the search engine business was growing. I knew the internet was growing. Just because the stock market was falling at that time on the internet had nothing to do with the fundamentals of the internet. Like, where did I go wrong in my thinking, you think? I think I think that it's very different to do what I did, which was going into a company that already had figured a lot of that stuff out. And it was pretty clear that they were, in both Google's case and Dropbox, they were on the right path. And the situation you encountered where there was no clear winner. And or maybe there was and and what you you needed to think of it through a different lens, which was at that point in time, what didn't matter was making money, but what mattered was just getting a lot of people using the product. So I think it That's depends true. on the lens. But and I was thinking too much from a Wall Street lens because you're right, it was it was eyeballs was the metrics. And there were still banner ads on search engines. Nobody knew that there was going to be this kind of auction environment for keywords at that time. Yeah, I I, I think that people, but people get hung up on too, on the specifics too much. I think I think if you're, let's say you're coming out of school now, like w- what can you predict with reasonable certainty? There's a couple to my mind. Electric cars are gonna are gonna be massive, and a, there's a company that just got funded that's making electric buses. Right? Those are that's a completely different industry. They're gonna have to invent. A ton, Tesla's already invented a ton of IP around around what they do. There are going to be massive companies. Tesla obviously is going to be one of them that 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 are based in that future reality. We're not going to be driving gasoline cars for much longer. All of our cars are going to be self driving. That's it's obvious, right? Right. So so there's some very obvious areas where you can just extrapolate what you know to be true. Now we're going to be communicating with devices, all of our devices, mostly through voice. Right. These things are all. They're all obvious if you think about them for a little bit. And then you can think about, well, what, what does that lead me to conclude? I don't know about investment, but I'm thinking more from a career standpoint. Where If I'm young and, and, and entering the workforce, those are the places that are going to be really exciting. And there's going to be a lot of change and a lot of opportunity and a lot of growth. And, and I'm going to ask you towards the end what uh, skills young people should start learning now or even older people who are thinking of switching careers. But what what you said just reminded me of a, of a scenario at Google. So one time I was visiting a friend of mine who, who I'm sure you know, um, who's fairly high up at Google and he was in charge or he is in charge of a lot of Google's kind of experimental stuff. And um, we had gone to graduate school together and a mutual friend of ours had created this great company that makes imperfect chips, chips that one time out of 10,000, they'll make a mistake. And the idea is that's okay. The mistakes aren't so important, but they'll be a hundred times faster. These chips are a hundred times faster than regular chips. And I said to him, did you look at our friend's company? Because we all talk to each other. And he said, yeah, I've looked at the company. And I said, what did you think? And he said, well, it's it's great. It looks very interesting. But if you just use Moore's law, eventually chips now anyway will be 
faster than those yeah. chips. So just, he wasn't solving a billion person problem. It was just a problem that was going to get solved automatically by the growth of technology. So he didn't buy the company. And I guess that that's that style of thinking. Yeah, so, and, and we apply that at Dropbox. So we had a decision a couple of years ago should we, we, the company grew up on AWS, on Amazon's uh, web services, and we had a decision, do we move off of that onto our own technology and buy all of our own hardware and write all of our own code on top of it uh, to solve our use case, which is a very unique storage and at our scale is very unique. Uh, and we, we just essentially had applied that thinking. If you, if you look at Moore's Law, you look at the cost curves, you look at where the cost of a gigabyte of storage is going to be in 10 years. It's, ra- it, it's an order of magnitude, multiple order of magnitudes lower than where we are today. So it, for us, that it made sense to not just kind of ride the, gro- the curve that, that Amazon's going to create, but create our own curve and basically follow Moore's law uh, you know, to, the, to the decimal point over the next couple of years. You had to also understand how much storage we expected to, to have coming in because and extrapolate the growth of all of that data that we're getting every day, you know, billion files saved to Dropbox every day. I mean, I think also you can do what I'll call Amazon's law right now, which is, you know, Borders let Amazon be their back-end store and then Borders went out of business and Amazon sells books. So you can't let... You can't let your competitor run your core asset, yep. And, yep. and not only that, like, you deal with so much storage, uh, you're probably... You've probably, I mean, I'm just guessing over the past 10 years, your Dropbox is 10 years old now. You've probably over the past 10 years completely rewritten your code base several times just to be faster uh, because you're getting so many requests for access into the database. If you just use like, you know, SQL, it's not going to be fast enough ultimately. Yeah. So our engineers are constantly tweaking our, our sync algorithm, which is the core algorithm that keeps your documents synced no matter what device you're on. Uh, and and now that we own our own storage architecture, both the hardware and the software, they're tweaking all of that kind of combined performance so that we we ship bits faster, we get them to you more reliably, all of those things. Now, it's, it's a different sort of problem, and, and I don't mean to be technical for the audience, but I, I used to be on the board of Bitly, you know, which is the mm-hmm. link shortener. Mm-hmm. So they get, you know, billions of requests a month to you know, every tweet on Twitter, you know, might be a short and Bitly link or Facebook or wherever or Amazon. You know, thousands of companies use Bitly as their shortener. And once we realized, oh my gosh, this is going to be maybe a hundred billion links a month being requested, we had to totally do everything totally from the ground up. Totally redo the whole thing. Yep. Yeah. Everything was just microseconds too slow. Yep. And you yep. can't do that. You can't have. You're not allowed to have downtime. That was the that was the key. Yep, and and w- w- at Dropbox it's the same way. The the sync engine has been rewritten multiple times. The sync client we're we're rewriting all the time or rewriting aspects of it. You have to constantly the product has to get faster. The files are getting bigger, so you have to be able to compress data more efficiently and transport that data more efficiently over time. And and I wanna I wanna um, dive into Dropbox on a couple of different issues, but I still wanna I still wanna hear like what more about I, I just I'm just fascinated with Larry Page and Sergey yeah. Brin. I want to hear like uh, some stories like so what what did Sergey Brin ask you on the interview? He's lying on the floor. You know, it, it, he was asking all about how do you design an efficient organization that scales. And I think it's interesting because Drew kind of asks me similar questions or did when I first met him. And he was he was interested in a building an organization that would scale on a global basis, uh, trying to create a consistent culture 
in that environment and what processes do you put in place? It How was did really you know? interesting. He was not asking. I didn't know. Like, what did you answer? <laughs> I, I don't know what I said. I think I, I don't. I don't think I had a particularly intelligent answer, but it, I guess it got me through. And and so 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 I'll ask the question: How do you build a business that scales? Well, I, you know, again, I learned more from from Larry and Sergey and, and Drew on that respect. One of the things that we did at Google was uh, we Larry would review every single interview pack. So every hire at Google up till probably ten or twelve thousand employees. Larry had a you know thirty to fifty page packet that was a resume, all the interview notes, any kind of papers that that person had published. Wow, thirty or fifty pages per in, per, per person. applicant. And he would spend out. I think they spent three or four hours in hiring committee, is what it was called, reviewing each of them uh, with a couple of his his senior execs and and at, for part of my career, I was in based in Europe, and you would send your packet. You know, to them on a, on Thursday and Friday evening, you'd hear and you might get a, a note back. You know, we rejected this person. Here's why. You know, we don't think culturally they're the right person, and here's why we don't think they're the right person. Well, why would someone not culturally be the right fit? We looked for we looked for some area of um, severe accomplishment. So we wanted we wanted to see something unique in every candidate. It could be. You know, it could be the person who's run, who's running Europe now and, and ran the UK for us was a, a Olympic rower. Hmm. Um, we had we had some uh, someone who was a judo champion, like those sorts of things, or uh, you know, a musician or worked at a nonprofit and had some m- m- kind of amazing contribution. We wanted to see like a real person. We did we didn't want to just see people who were. On the corporate track, right? Well, this is related to what we're, we're, you wanted to see the unfiltered. Uh, people took the unfiltered yes, path as opposed to the filter, filtered we path. We did, and and at Dropbox, it's although we don't have the same hiring pro- process, we 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 do something similar in that we have a no, no hiring manager can make a decision on an individual hire. You are interviewed both by your future peers, your future boss their peers and people who might report into you. So it's very much a 360 view. And then all those people get together and they discuss every candidate and every, everybody's voice is equal. And if you don't have real consensus in that room about the candidate, about their values alignment and their ability to contribute, we don't hire them. We'd rather pass than, than make the wrong hire. Let's stop to take a quick break. We'll be right back. So obviously, Dropbox is starting to emulate the growth of Google. Once a team gets bigger than, I mean, this is almost an evolutionary thing. Uh, and Yuval Harari talks about this in the book Sapiens. I don't know if you ever had a chance to, to read that, but basically, after 150 people, um, everything becomes you don't know everybody anymore, and you right. can't gossip about everybody anymore. You have to have uh, what's special about humans. You have to have a story to tell, and people buy into the story. So. If I'm in America and I meet someone from China, we might both believe in, I don't know, Christianity or the American dollar. And so now we can work together because we believe in some similar story. We find that story and we, we start interacting according to that. So, so it seems like this is related to motivation and management. Like once Google got to be, I don't know, 10,000 employees, how do you continually motivate the people at the leaves of the organization? Well, mission super important and having... Just keep bringing it back to mission. You could be you could be on the sales side, which is where I, I was, and we, you you would talk about how you're empowering your your advertisers, which often can be small businesses as well as big companies, to to reach their audience and be successful 
in a much more efficient way than the old way of doing things. And at Dropbox, it's very similar as we talk about uh, the, the organizations that we're empowering. Like there's an organization called IRAP, which is a refugee assist, assistance project. And they tell us that they, since they implemented Dropbox, can reach 10 times as many refugees. So they're, they're impacting 10 times as many people as they did before Dropbox. So we tell those stories and try to tell those stories over and over to give people a collective sense of what we're actually trying to accomplish as a team. And that, that sense of mission in any kind of growing company where there's all kinds of skepticism on the outside and there's all kinds of competition, it's super important to keep people focused on. Again, it, it, it helps people think more about 10 years and less about you know, the next 10 days. So how, how often is your messaging to employees about vision and about, about the, the, the overriding mission statement? Well, we we try to weave in stories about customers all the time. I mean, the the at our all hands, we're all we're always talking about a customer. We're actually having the IRAP folks come into the office on Monday and and talk to our employees. Um, we we call them Dropboxers. Uh, we we weave in stories about customers every week in kind of our our internal uh, internal blog, and uh, and and it's it's just it's very important. You can't do enough of that. So so okay. So on Dropbox. Let's say I was going to create a competitor Dropbox. Here's how I see Dropbox. It's you, I could rent a bunch of space on, on Amazon if I'm just starting out. You, you've now moved off of Amazon, mm-hmm. but I don't you need could. to worry about that. And so I'm, I'm using all of their sophisticated support and algorithms. I can have a front end similar looking to Dropbox. And I could say, look, I'm going to give you all the space for free forever instead of you paying $10 a month for Dropbox. So that's attempt number one. Attempt number two is I could be Google and I could create the Google Drive and compete with Dropbox. Like, how does Dropbox compete with both of those ends? Because it feels like that in this business to consumer industry, I mean, then you have Box.com, you have competitors. So how do you how do you keep branding yourself like nobody can touch us? Where's the moat? Yeah, the it. The moat in, in, in part is all of the connections that people have made and continue to make on Dropbox. The way Dropbox got going was I used it, I loved it, I shared a link with you, you signed up. It's a very viral product. And the killer app within Dropbox today is something that we call a share folder. So it's a folder that both of us can be in. We can both contribute documents or files into that folder and collaborate on that folder. So that actually- But cre- Google Drive also, you can, do, you can do things like that. True, but, but it's a little bit like- uh, Google Plus wasn't able to supplant Facebook once Facebook right. already got the kind of the graph going and and the and the set of connections going. So we already have well over half a billion people using Dropbox. So it would be very hard to 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 get that entire community to move and because they'd have to replicate all of those sharing connections. So that's kind of that's one aspect, but What's equally important is we keep innovating on the product. So there are tons of situations, low bandwidth situations, sharing from an iPhone to someone on Android, where our competitors do not handle those those loads well. They, you know, our the best engineers at Dropbox are on this problem, and that's definitely not true in in our competitors because our even competitors, Google, sure, you know, Google ships lots of stuff, and the the. The, the kind of the core thing that Google does is search and ads and and those places tend to attract you know rock star engineers for us it's it's core sync uh, sync technology and and our core Dropbox application that's that's what attracts rock star engineers I feel like like, like a lot of um, a lot of Silicon Valley stuff is all about valuation and who's making this kind of money and who's making that kind of money and the companies that succeed and grow in valuation are 
almost like flavor of the month type companies. Like, oh, everybody likes social media companies this year. Everybody likes storage companies this year or virtual reality companies this year. Dropbox, I feel perhaps deservedly and probably deservedly, when you did your your last big round of funding, I forget what year it was, 2013 or 2014, yep. you raised 500 million or some huge number at a, at a $10 billion valuation. At the time you had about 400 million in, in revenues or maybe even a little bit less. And everybody was saying, how are you going to grow into that valuation? Now you're clearly going and in, growing into that valuation with a, a billion dollar run rate, 10x revenues for storage seems seems normal. But at the time, again, it seemed like, was it ridiculous? Did it seem ridiculous to you at that at level? Or were you projecting into again, the future? Again, I think you just have to look really long term. Like think about Slack. I was rumored to be raising another round at five billion. I'm an investor in Slack, so you maybe you know. So Godspeed. <laughs> Amazon's looking at buying them for nine billion. Are you confirming that? I'm <laughs> not confirming that. No, I'm a low okay. level investor. <laughs> well, uh, but I guess I guess the point is that you need to you know you need to look at what what these companies can become not what they are today and you you do need to extrapolate out because uh if you were looking at Facebook in 2008 you would have seen a company with a couple hundred million in revenue at most and you know not not very clear sense as to how they're going to get beyond on web kind of social and is there an ad model there and is a is a established brand ever going to put money into fa- like there are all these questions out there but the thing that was hard, the hardest thing to do, was to get that that momentum gr- going and get those users engaging. That was the hardest thing to do. All the other stuff, you can solve over time. If you don't have that first thing, you're never gonna you're never gonna be able to get into the ad business and buy Instagram and all the rest. And they had solved that super hard problem. And I think that's that's true for Dropbox. We we had solved back in 2014. It was pretty obvious we had solved that super hard problem of getting user adoption and user growth. And plus that, that the viral aspect of like if you want to see my files, you got to sign up. Exactly. You have all that going for you. You also have a super efficient business model because we did we we when I joined there was no Salesforce. We had we all the money was made by people signing up on our website. And even today, that's the vast majority of our revenue. We we don't we have a sales team, but it's more of a. a I would say a, a set of uh, Navy SEALs, not the not the, the huge army, and that makes it more efficient. And you can take your cash and employ it to hire engineers and build better product. And that's what we've done. So, so these companies, you're right back to your valuation question. I think I think savvy investors who understand this, they 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 see that those companies come up every now and then, and it's pretty rare when they have that product market fit. They have the beginnings of a business model, and they have that that massive consumer adoption and or user adoption. And 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 those companies can be worth lots of money over a long period of time. I remember reading once, and I don't know if this is true or not, but Peter Thiel doesn't like to invest in a company right now until they hit a billion dollar valuation, because at that point, then he knows that a they're going to continue raising you know big amounts of money, and they've already kind of had that adoption and and so on that, that first level of success. So they're going to keep growing. Yeah, I mean personally, I I think there's two types of. Um, uh, entrepreneurs and two types of of investors or or business people who 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 join these companies. There are folks who think they can take something from zero to one, and then there are people more like me who think they can take it from one to ten. And I don't think I'd be very good at at finding the next kind of company that gets from nothing to ten million in revenue. Um, and, and there's a class of people who are really good at that. It's just, that's not me. And and I think Peter is saying. He's really good at seeing a company that can and understanding why it can go from a billion in valuation to some larger number. But but you know, let's we skipped over one part of your career, which is that 
between Google and Dropbox, not really in between, but sort of related, but Google put you in charge of all their Motorola, Motorola. and mobile yeah. solutions. And now Android is the most popular operating system in the world. So it's more popular than Windows, which is a desktop operating system. Essentially, mobile has replaced desktop. Like if, if I wasn't a writer, for instance, I don't think I would ever use a laptop or a desktop yeah. computer. I would just use my phone. Yeah. And that's probably the general trend of, like that's my kids mo- don't use computers, really. They use phones. I mean, most people in the world, their experience with technology will be through a phone. I mean, not not most, like the vast majority. So so the adoption <laughs> of, not that you were in charge of Android, but the adoption of Android as being now the most popular operating system in the world is at least in part due to your no, contribution. No, oh, absolutely not, no. I'm, I'm giving you say, credit. <laughs> well, you can, but that's, no, Android, you know, Andy Rubin, Started uh, started Android and and Google acquired his company. Right, but he spent years within Google building Android and building the ecosystem and and building a set of hardware partners who would ship ship Android on their phones. And that was a battle because you had BlackBerry who was who was really dominating in in the smartphone world. Um, you had Microsoft and Nokia who were trying their own thing. That was that was who the competition was. And then all of a sudden the iPhone comes along. And uh, and it was it was really hard. And and when Google acquired Motorola, Android had about forty percent global share. And so the the war was not by any means won. Um, and and there was a lot going on. But M- Motorola had both a handset division and a set of uh, intellectual property that uh, that Google didn't have. And all of the other Android OEMs were being sued at the time. You'll remember by Microsoft and. And other and Apple and others and um, and so by acquiring Motorola, you got both the handset business, but you also got the intellectual property, which which provided some level of protection for Android and allowed it to flourish. But that had nothing to do with me. <laughs> but but then you but then you started running it. So what what happened next? It's hard. So we we acquired a company that had lost I want to say a billion dollars a year for the prior five years, and there had been this massive shift in computing from or in mobile from. Uh, feature phones to smartphones, which meant you you needed to understand a whole new set of things around software engineering, around uh, systems development. Uh, marketing became more important, and, and Motorola missed that shift. So they were starting a bit from behind. They had a very uh, visionary uh, CEO who who said, "We're going to burn the ships and go to Android," and was one of the first OEMs to go to Android, Sanjay Jha. And so that that gave the company breathing room. Uh, but but it was it was still going to be hard against a Samsung or an Apple who were off to the races at that point. So our job was to try to compete in the in this new smartphone world by winnowing down the number of products that the company was shipping and try to build a couple of brands that were lasting and global. And we shipped a product called Moto X, uh, and we made it very simple. Moto, we had good, better, best. X was the high end. G was in the middle, and E was at the low end. And what, do, what do I got? I got the Moto here. You you've got the the Verizon Droid. Oh, okay. Is it good? Do you like it? <laughs> uh, it is. Although I use a Pixel today, I like right. the Pixel. But uh, but but our our job really was to get get Motorola back to a growing business. We Google made the decision that it was because it was supporting Android, which a, a number of hardware OEMs were using. Like I want to say over a hundred. It was not going to advantage Motorola, so we were run completely independently. Um, our employees weren't weren't Google employees. The only the only support we got was financial. We didn't have any access to code or anything like that, which made it very hard because we we didn't have any structural uh, advantage in a market where you needed size and scale or you needed access to like 
the ability to build your own screens or own batteries. And- so, so it's almost like, so Google bought the, the business in order to basically protect themselves against uh, uh, patents, you know, as a patent protection saying, oh, we're in this business, so that gives us this extra layer of, of patent protection. And then they said to you, by the way, this is actually a business anyway, so we have to still run it, but we don't really give a crap about how it does that no, much. No, I mean, no, 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 I didn't say that. But they, the, the, the directive was, hey, let's. This is a handset business. This is a growing market. Let's figure out how we get can get this business back to success, and then we will figure out what the path forward is once we're on a better, a better trajectory. And so that was the mission. How do you, how do you? get the company back to where there are a couple of great products in the market where there's growth back in the business again and then we'll figure out what we do and ultimately decided you know if we're not going to create any structural advantage for the company we shouldn't own it we should we should enable one of our partners to take what we've built and 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 go from there so, and so we sold it to Lenovo okay right right so 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 you basically got it into shape what did you do well we 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 went from 45 products you know which which when you have 45 products, it's really hard to do any kind of marketing around any single one. You can't concentrate your fire. We went down to basically four. Uh, we shipped the first smartphone kind, watch. Kind of, you, you're kind of going off the the Steve Jobs model when he got back to Apple. Like he trimmed all the products. You, you had to do that. Absolutely mm-hmm. had to do that. And you had to concentrate your best resources on on fewer things. And then you had to put the marketing behind it and put the distribution muscle behind it. Uh, we we then we we spun up a team that was focused on just on. Kind of new innovation, which wound up building the first Android watch, and now uh, Android in the watch space is is doing all right. But obviously, Apple is 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 doing quite well there, um, and uh, and ultimately, we we got enough growth back into the bit. We shipped Moto G, which was the best sm- selling smart or phone, a smartphone that uh, Motorola had ever shipped, and then eventually we sold the company. So so at, at that point, then you were probably looking around. Uh, is that when you? Said okay, Dropbox, here I come. Well, well, I had so Drew had reached out to me not about a kind of role, but more about like, hey, I, I'm I, I'm trying to learn, and this was the conversation that I was talking about where he just wanted to pepper me with questions about how do you scale a business and how do you run your management meeting, those sorts of things. And um, but I followed the company and just just was always interested in what they were doing and where it was going, and and I just started spending a little bit more time with him and with Arash, his co-founder. And got more and more interested in where they were going and his vision. And and again, you couldn't really see everything. There wasn't like a, a a roadmap from where we were then to where we are now and where we're going in the future. But you could see enough. There's so much love for the product. I would just start asking people, hey, you know, how do you where do you store your stuff? How do you, do you ever hear of Dropbox? Use Dropbox. It turned out that uh, you know, our contractor used Dropbox and my wife was using Dropbox. How for, many users a day clubs. do you get right now? Hmm? How many new users a day do you get right now? Uh, I don't. Well, I don't think we share new users a day, but we we've been signing up many millions a month mm-hmm. uh, for a very long time. So and so, when you called up Larry and Sergey and said, "Hey, it's been a great run, but now I'm going off to this new thing," what did they say to you? Did yeah. they say, "Hey, we're gonna kill you with uh, Google Drive"? You know, those aren't always easy conversations. But you know, Larry's very. He, look, he's an incredible leader, and he's, as always, you know, very gracious in those situations. And if you think about Google, some of the more interesting companies in the valleys are populated by people who came from Google. And so it's uh, well, I wasn't the first person to walk into his office and tell him that, and and tell him why. And you know, I think he understood and respected that I I was really passionate about helping uh, 
helping a great entrepreneur build a company because you know he had he is a great entrepreneur and he has built a company. So I think he understood that. And and you know with with Dropbox, look, I use Dropbox. I upload all my files there, whatever. Um, but there's a certain trust that never happened before in kind of in society. Like it used to be, I had all my possessions and I would kind of hold on to them and keep them in my house and even paperwork and photos and videos I'd put in, you know, VHS tapes and store them in my ba basement or a storage facility. Now everything goes to this, you know, mysterious cloud in the sky, which is essentially now Dropbox for, for, for most people. There's a kind of trust, like what happens, could it be the case that that trust is is broken like you can either be hacked so that all my files are accessible to someone else or you could just disappear and what happens well you know our first value in company value is be worthy of trust and it's super important we know that 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 user trust is what earns us the right to have a business so we take that really seriously and we invest a ton of resources people money on security we have some of the best security engineers in the world Working at Dropbox, that's that's incredibly important to us. Um, but you know, this is a, we're in a world where people's people's things, their applications, their 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 stuff is increasingly going to live in the cloud. And there and there are trade offs. You can't physically see it like you could, you know, see your VHS tapes and go down and see the and, and look at them. But you can access the same content that used to be on those tapes from any device anywhere in the world. And so, you know, as users, all of us make those trade offs and. And the trade-offs most people are willing to make is, hey, I, 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 this service, I'm going to trust this service. That the benefits I'm going to get are going to way outweigh, kind of the the mental shift that I'm going to have to make from a physical world to a to to a world that's much more digital and much more cloud-based. And so, so for someone listening to this who says, okay, it's great for this guy to say he's seen all these trends, he's he's done well with Google, and 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 he will do well with with Dropbox. Uh, someone could say, I'm sitting in my cubicle or I'm sitting in my classroom or I'm deciding what to do with my career. What skills and trends are you seeing now that I should start learning if I'm going to be at the right spot 10 years from now? Well, I think there's two different things. I think one is just having a curious mindset about what's going on and and about what how are things going to change in the next in the next couple of years for for what you do in your in your daily job, how you shop. How you communicate and and just being curious about those things, I think, is really important. I think in terms of skills, what's been really interesting to me is to see the whole rise of online learning. And you know, Khan Academy was one of the first institutions really to show the world that you can learn real stuff on YouTube. Well, the very first employee of Craig, Google, yeah, Craig yeah, Silverstein is there. Yeah, is that at the Khan Academy yeah, right now? Yeah. So, you know, incredible mission to empower and 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 educate anybody in the world to the same level as you know the best private schools in in the US. So I, I think that it, that is incredibly empowering and you're seeing you're seeing organizations like Udacity create programs that truly educate you in how to code. The, how to do I was telling you my son has taken a course around machine learning and has gone through a year-long Udacity program all online. Um, there's a huge community around it. You take the class with other students, you communicate, you know, you learn from one another. And um and and he taught himself Python that way as well. So I think you're gonna see more and more learning and more and more skills being acquired way outside of the traditional classroom in people's spare time when they're 
on the bus when they're in the tube because you can access you can access these these applications anywhere. What about non-coding skills? Like not everybody's meant to be a programmer or an engineer. Yeah, you know, design is another area that's that's really important. If you think about the, again, this is related to my field. So mm. it, the constraints that the phone imposes or mobile device imposes really requires a, a an attention to design, to the how the user interacts with the program. What what are the decisions you make about the 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 uh, icon? That you you know that you use on the application about the menus, how those menus work, what you surface, what you don't, all of those things become really important because the space is so constrained. So design is a really important discipline that that you know there's not a lot of places that you can learn that, and um, and uh, and the, those skills are in huge demand. And and what um, what about like how has sales and and negotiation? How are things like kind of these? Basic soft skills. How have they changed with with this new economy? I think it's I think it's really interesting. The, the you know some things you you things like negotiating a deal and establishing mutual trust and having a relationship. Those are always going to be important. But I think what you're seeing is a lot more of uh, people are advantage when they are sharing what they know in a kind of very open and continuous way. And some people do that on social. And they kind of establish a name for themselves or reputation, and that and that opens the door in many ways. Let's say in a sales situation, um, some people, you know, I met with a, a, a CTO today who first thing that he he wanted to do is just share a number of startups that he has bumped into and ask, hey, what do you think about this? What do you think about that? You know, people who do that they they tend to be they tend to be very connected to what's next, what's new, what can help them. They tend to be really open and, and, and seeking to help other people. And, and, and they don't think of their career as like, it's all about me. It's really about how do I empower those around me and, and, and that over time will pay benefits. So I think that's, that's a little bit different than, again, going back to your linear path where it was just about kind of following that trail right. up. It's more, about, it's more about creating a network of people around you who share the same kind of curiosity and, and interests and can support you Along the way, I think that's really key because I think over like a ten, people want to be an overnight success, but I think over a 10, 20 year period of kind of bit by bit making connections and helping other people without any expectation back, then yes. uh, you build the 20 years later, you can make a call and, and people remember. That's exactly right. And you learn so much along the way that you otherwise wouldn't wouldn't have learned. And, 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 and what one thing, you know, what happens sometimes is you get these insights that strike you. So this person I was meeting today was saying, you know, we, we're completely changing our approach to, to software. We're looking at active users as if they're consumer applications, and we're supporting those that have the most active users within our company. This is a 20,000-person company. And, and we're, we're no longer going to buy those that are only used by 100 people. That's a completely different approach to being the CTO of a multi-billion dollar company. Like that, and that was, that, he, that was just an insight that was you know, free, so to speak, because mm-hmm. we were just sharing ideas, but that's hugely valuable, mm-hmm. um, and 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 you only get that if you're willing to share what what you know, and and often, a lot of times you know things that you don't even know are valuable until you share them, and uh, and so that's I think that's different. So so final question or two, Dropbox, when's it? Are you going to get sold? Are you going to IPO? What's the story? So Drew's been pretty clear. We're on a path to creating a great company. Uh, we have all the hallmarks of that. We've got an incredible technical team. We've got a great product. We've got great uh, product market fit. We've got a great business model. 
And, um, and he's also been pretty clear that, yeah, at some point on the path to becoming a great company is likely to be, you know, a, a, an IPO, but we don't have, we don't have plans at this point. And then for, for you personally, when is, when do you realize enough is enough? Like for instance, after Google, you probably could have said, oh, I'm going to write a novel now or, or become an actor somewhere or, or do something completely different, not technical. Now, obviously you've been fascinated throughout your whole career about the technology and, and the future and so on. But when do you decide, oh, I'm going to take uh, 10 years off and, and play, get better at golf? You know, uh, you know, I try golf. I'm horrible at it. The, 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 uh, the person that I kind of got to know a bit in, in the Valley is a guy named Bill Campbell. Um, oh, yeah. Bill was a, Bill's a coach. Intuit. Uh, he was a chairman of Intuit. He was a, a marketing exec at Apple, and then he was a coach. He was on the Apple board. He was a coach to both Apple or Steve Jobs and, and, and Larry. And, and um, you know, he... he he reinvented himself multiple times in his career. He was a football coach at Columbia and then somehow got into marketing in Europe in technology and somehow wound up at Apple and, 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 and into it. And um, I think that's just a much more interesting life. I think that, that uh, at some point it doesn't really become work. It becomes what, just what you do. And I think, um, I think that, that would be a much more fun, fun path then uh, still staying then involved and in, like changing the future. Staying involved with with companies that are trying to do great things, do big things in some way, shape, or form. Well, Dennis Woodside, uh, COO of Dropbox, one of my favorite companies that I use. I, I probably use it every day, actually, because my whole team shares. Like we're taking a video of this podcast that will go by right the end of the day go into Dropbox. Yeah. 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 So. Um, and obviously, we we trust it and use it. So, congratulations on all this success, and uh, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks, it's been fun. Next time on the James Altucher Show, I tell my daughter who's fifteen. She thinks about college, even though I'm not as in favor of college as many people know. But oh, wait, hold on, hold on, dude. <laughs> to, to not talk your daughter out of college, I, I know you teach at NYU. You've run a bunch of companies. You've sold a bunch of companies. you failed at some companies. Yeah. You were on the board of the New York Times. But I just think college has become such a scam. I agree with you. But here's the bottom line. Are we allowed to curse on this show, by yeah, the way? Yeah, of course. I just don't meet that many really successful people in their 30s or 40s who went to a top 20 school and say, you know what? I really fucked up going to Stanford. I mean, I hear that never. <laughs> and some people might say college has become too expensive. I get it. College is not for everyone. Hands down, it's not. But if you're in a position to go to a good slash great school as a young person in this economy, by all means, get to college. And if you happen to be Steve Jobs or Bill Gates or Mark Zuckerberg and you are so exceptional that you drop out of Harvard in your second year, fine. But assuming you are Bill Gates is a really bad strategy. A lot of people tell our kids over lunch when they come speak to them, follow your passion. And I find that people who tell you to follow your passion are generally already rich. And I think people need to focus on find something you're great at and then become the best in the world at it. Establish real differentiation. That's such an important thing. Like having a vision that is bigger or more interesting than the vision of the people around you, that's a winning path to success. Mm -hmm. I think it's important early on to have a code. So take this back to unimportant stuff, business. What do all Fortune 500 CEOs have in common? Or I would say 450 of them when you meet them, and I've met a lot of them. They're really likable. Even the ones that are also psychopaths. Psychopathic, yeah. yeah. During the day, these people are Darwin and Darth Vader. Make no mistake about it. They, they play full body contact business and they make very brutal decisions. They dominate markets, they put companies out of business. 
and they don't put warning labels on your iPad, even though your kid has a crack-like addiction to the thing, right? So they're just better at this than anybody else. Hey, if you like this episode and want to hear more from The James Altucher Show, then subscribe and leave a review to help other people find the show. I would so appreciate it, and it's really important. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools.